Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, get people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I am going to remember this week to tell you that I work for Illinois Indiana Sea Grant at Purdue University. Uh, and I'm joined today by my good friend and co-host, Megan Gunn. Megan, how are you? I'm doing really good, Stuart. How are you doing? I'm also doing good. I'm feeling fired up. We had a nice 80 degree day yesterday, the last one for the year, but I experienced sweat, which I enjoyed. And now it is thundering and perhaps raining. And uh, we are headed, of course, to the inevitable decline of the weather towards winter. But I'm not going to talk about that because instead, what I'm going to talk about is it is almost election time. And I am not a political junkie, but I have been following the election with interest, I think, because this is a, a high relevance time, I think, for folks. How about you? Are you fired up about the election? I voted the other day, so I guess I was fired up, and now I feel kind of just calm about everything. Nice. I was going to go vote at the arena. The, the I think it's called is it called Mackey? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, the yeah. the basketball. Yeah, yeah, the basketball <laughs> thing, and they had early voting, and so I was all fired up. And then somebody told me he waited in line for three hours to vote, and I said, you know what? My polling place opens at six in the morning on election day. My kids wake up at five. I'll be okay. Anyway, I, I had a 10 minute wait, so you may want to try over on this side of town. 10 minute wait over on that side. Yeah, but then I have to get on my bike or drive. Or <laughs> yeah. I think I've forgotten how to drive. It's been so long since I've done it regularly at this point. Uh, I'm slowly regressing. Anyway. All right, good. Uh, so our guest, I'm really excited to talk to our guest, though. So it's election relevant, right? We wanted to keep it Great Lakes focused, but be very topical because that's, uh, you know, a key thing for us is topical. Uh, so we're excited. We have a, a, an assistant professor of political science with us. So let's actually just uh, play some interstitial music and then get going with it. Um, how about this one today? <laughs> Our guest today is Dr. Chris Devine. He is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Dayton in the Great Lakes state of Ohio. And he does a lot of work into sort of uh, uh, politics in the area and vice presidents, actually, of all things and, and stuff like that. And so we're really excited to talk to him. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm great. It's good to join you. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, thank you for coming. So let's talk about the Midwest kind of as a battleground. You'll hear that a lot about Great Lakes states specifically and Midwest more generally. They're battleground states. What does that mean precisely? Sure. And so I have to start off by mentioning uh, the kind of the research that that I, I think uh, tied me into this uh, podcast is that I uh, wrote a book chapter on uh, the Midwest really as a battleground. That was part of a book published by the University Press of Kansas. It's called The Conservative Heartland. Uh, John Locke and uh and Kathy McNichol Stock are the editors on that. And my co-author on this chapter uh, was my colleague Dan Birdsong at the University of Dayton. And I mentioned that. Uh, I want to make sure I give him credit. Uh, also, Dan is really uh, he has this passion, especially for answering your question here. What is a battleground? And we often have discussions of this, and he could probably describe it better than I did. But to try to give a succinct answer to this, battleground is actually a term that comes from. Uh, it's a military term applied to politics. Uh, it's not just uh, it's not new that we think of uh, politics and uh, war terms sometimes, even a campaign. Right. That also comes from yeah, true. Uh, the language of politics is really violent, isn't it? It hmm. is. It actually yeah. is. Frighteningly so. Yes. <laughs> and sometimes appropriately. So I don't know. But um, but yeah, uh, a battleground, you know, it, it's contested ground. It's something that could be up for grabs. And when we think of the Electoral College, um, obviously, uh, the the presidency is determined not by who wins the most votes overall. Otherwise, we'd We'd be uh, we'd have President Clinton right now, 
Uh, instead, it's about who wins most votes in electoral college. Almost every state, except for pesky Maine and Nebraska, um, uh, give all of their votes to whoever wins the most votes in the state. They have a little different of a system. Uh, so most of the time, if you want those uh, 18 electoral votes from Ohio or 16 from Michigan or whatever it might be, as long as you get one more vote than the other person, you get all of them. Uh, as we had so many close ones, for instance, in 2016, Michigan being decided by uh, 0.2%. So that was a battleground and, and, and uh, surely will be again this time. So is it is the Midwest have like an unusual concentration of battleground states then? Is that why there seems like a big focus on it? Or uh, um, or is it just feel that way because I live here now? It is unusual. That's really what, what this this whole book chapter is about is kind of, um, uh, you know, really saying that clearly and, and presenting some evidence to show it that this is not a new phenomenon, that uh, the Midwest has been the central battleground uh, in electoral college. Uh, you know, we show that going back into the 1800s, uh, for instance, uh, by a variety of, of measures. Uh, in recent years, you look at where the candidates go, they go by far more to Midwest than to the rest of the country, to other regions. Um, in fact, we, we title the chapter Fly to Country, uh, right, rather than, than uh, Fly Over when it comes to the campaigns. It's where they're flying to. Uh, we see that in this campaign as well. Um, just to give an example, my favorite example um, my state of Ohio in 2012 got 30% of all campaign visits for the entire country. One state. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Not, it wasn't number one in 2016 and surely won't be in 2020 either, um, but it's always up there towards the top. Uh, so is, is the Midwest a major battleground? Yes, in terms of where the candidates are, are going to. Uh, if we track that back to even um, how often they're mentioned as battlegrounds in newspaper coverage, media coverage. Um, my, uh, Dan Birdsong uh, took the lead on, on this one, created a brilliant new measure of, of even determining, you know, how the media are covering states as battleground states. Midwestern states is a percentage of all states called battlegrounds in media coverage uh, going back several decades. Uh, the Midwest is far ahead of any other region in that regard as well. So by, by a number of different metrics, some new ones that we present here, some new uh, data to document what I think most of us know, especially if we live in the Midwest. Yes, it's true. The Midwest is is a battleground uh, to a greater extent than any other region of the country. And that's typically the way it is. So, uh, but I, I think of like, uh, I, th I feel like we're in times of migration right now, right? Yeah. Um, where, where at least a lot of the, the population is moving out of the Midwest and concentrating on the coast. Maybe, is that accurate? I'm not sure. Or concentrating within the cities along the Midwest. So, so is that <laughs> traditional battleground status something that you expect to see continuing going forward? Or is it unclear at this point? It, it, so great observation there. You know, it, it's true. We have population shifts and that's going to influence to what extent certain areas are battlegrounds. For instance, southern states seem to be becoming more battlegrounds, uh, especially Georgia, Texas. We'll see where it lands this time around. Um, but some southern states are becoming much more competitive than they used to be in part, in part, it's hard, you know, the various dynamics. Uh, but because some folks, uh, especially from, let's say, the northeast um, and midwest, uh, are moving uh, down to those areas. And uh, oftentimes these are more uh, college educated folks uh, who may be going down uh, to the South uh, for uh, new job opportunities. They typically are moving to metro areas. It's Houston, it's Atlanta and so on. Uh, and a recent divide we see in politics, and it used to be this way, really 2016 was a flashpoint for this, is we're starting to see a major divide in partisan preferences between folks who do and do not have a college degree. Uh, hmm. So those without uh, tend to be going more towards uh, Donald Trump overall, um, at least Republican candidates, and those with uh, more towards Democratic candidates. Um, 
So that's just one example of how, yes, migration can shift the competitiveness of states um, as the Midwest loses population in relative terms over time. Um, that may be one reason why we're seeing fluctuations in competitiveness where, um, you know, even in a state like Ohio that used to be uh, more competitive, at least the last time around was not so much so. Um, and then we have other states like uh, Minnesota or Michigan that, that, you know, for decades have not really been con contested, uh, at least haven't ended up close, uh, were close at least last time around and probably will be uh, this time. And of course, in the long, well, in the super long run, we're all dead, as John Maynard Keynes allegedly said. But 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 thinking about uh, uh, how population patterns aren't static, right? And they don't stay the same. I mean, you look at some of the climate projections, for example, and and it's expected mm -hmm. that, you know, people might even start moving back toward this area of the country as, as other areas become less inhabitable. Maybe not, that might not be our lifetime, or at least not the next phase of our lifetime. Um, but, but I guess you might expect to see that again, huh? Yeah, it, it's possible. You know, um, I'm not sure if uh, <laughs> we're... we're People would shift if, I don't know, they're coming from Florida or Louisiana or whatever. Do they necessarily come to the Midwest? Uh, do they go to the West, um, Mountain West, for instance? Or, or you know, that, that's hard to project. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll see some changes in, 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 uh, in, in, in migration patterns, and, and uh, that, that could change. Whether it's people coming into the Midwest or people uh, leaving it, uh, we'll probably see changes in the future that could affect, uh, political, uh, uh, affect the political map. And stupid question here, but but as the population changes, the number of electoral votes change as well over time, right? Is that is that tied right. to the census, or how you know what's the mechanism? Yes, yes, it is. So okay. based on the, on the census, um, <laughs> so we start off with every state gets two Senate seats, uh, and then there are four hundred thirty five House seats, House representatives to go around. Uh, it's not how it originally was, but uh, for the past one hundred years, uh, by law, uh, that's the cap. And so the question every 10 years after a census is how has the population shifted around, uh, at least in relative terms. For instance, Ohio had lost population leading up to the 2010 census. And so it lost uh, two uh, seats in the House of Representatives. Uh, so it used to have 20 electoral votes, now it's 18. Um, probably we're going to lose another one, unfortunately, uh, in this next round. So we'll be down to 15 House seats. You add the two Senate seats, that's 17 electoral votes. So yes, the, it's based on... Since the House representatives based on population and electoral votes represent the Senate plus House seats for every state, um, that will affect uh, Ohio and Indiana and or potentially Indiana, uh, other states around uh, the Midwest as well. Interesting. And so with a theoretical, you know, there's talk of potentially adding additional states in the form of Puerto Rico or Washington, D.C., or uh, I just read about this. We'll talk about this with... Um, our other guest may be splitting off the upper peninsula into its own state. Apparently they want to secede. So I'm excited to read about that. Um, uh, but so then that same 435 would get divided up more ways potentially. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, it, it's possible, you know, the, the constitution doesn't mandate that there be 435 seats. It okay. does mandate two Senate seats per state and that the electoral college formula uh, be house plus Senate seats. Uh, so if the law, not the constitution, it's not in the constitution, but if the law were changed, so that there, uh, it could be either we stick for four, with 435 seats and now we shift that around, adding in Puerto Rico or whatever states may come in, uh, or that number is raised. Gotcha. Um, so the other states don't necessarily have to adjust. It gets complicated. Right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Electoral calculus is maybe pretty accurate. Well, let's talk a little bit. So you've done a lot of research on vice presidents, which I think is an interesting topic to research. Uh, I will look up the famous quote. I won't say it because this is a family show about the value of the vice presidency. Um, but I think you research... 
right? That, spit. What is no, it? It's not not worth a warm just bucket use, of spit. Warm bucket of spit. <laughs> yeah. yes. That's the second time in the episode we just released yesterday. We used spit as a, a euphemism for something else in a Monty Python song. So uh, yes. Uh, it's not worth a warm bucket of spit. However, your research is much more valuable. So your research itself is more valuable than a vice presidency, <laughs> supposedly. Uh, so what, what, how do you do vice presidency research? Are you like modeling or looking, you know, doing qualitative stuff? What kind of research are you doing with that exactly? So first I have to defend the vice presidency. Okay. Okay. Fair so, so that's the famous quote from John Nance Garner, FDR's first vice president. He had four of them. Um, wow. three of them. Excuse, excuse me. Maybe it's just FDR three. who was tough to work with. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Um, and, you know, John Nance was coming from being Speaker of the House. He had presidential ambitions of his own in comparison. The vice president didn't seem like much. You know, the constitutional responsibilities of the vice president are pretty minimal. Um, the mm. main one really is breaking ties in the Senate if there's ever a tie vote, and there rarely are, uh, presiding over the Senate, but, you know, they rarely do. Uh, and, of course, taking over for the president if, if the president were to die or resign or something like that. Um, in the last 40 or so years, really starting with the Carter administration, he reached an agreement uh, when he selected Walter Mondale as his vice president to give more power to the vice president. It's a model that worked really well. And so presidents since then have stuck with that. Um, they don't have to. There's no law requiring it, let alone constitutional uh, provision. But they just tend to because it, it works to their advantage. So, you know, in short, what does the vice president do these days? Uh, the vice president is a liaison uh, domestic, uh, in domestic and foreign affairs. So negotiating with Congress, as Joe Biden did on budget deals in, in the early two, 2010s. Um, uh, look at uh, Mike Pensley and the coronavirus task force and working with governors. They often serve as kind of, uh, you know, uh, just under the president level uh, uh, ambassadors going around the world and, and, and maybe doing preliminary negotiations with foreign nations. So, so sorry, I just have to have to stick up. No, no, no. So, so the vice presidency now has emerged into a No, of course. I was just being flippant with that. But obviously the vice presidency is something with a lot of potential power and responsibility, yeah. even if it's not, you know, directly uh, constitutionally enabled or whatever. And so what, what do you do specifically with vice presidential type research? Sure. So the, this book, uh, this is with another co-author, Kyle Kopko of, of Elizabethtown College, and it's called Do Running Mates Matter? And uh, it's really the first book that ever tackles this question, believe it or not, of what effect uh, running mates have on the election. There are other ways, you know, wants to deal with media coverage or selection, but do they actually move votes? Um, we bring together a few different perspectives uh, on, on this, different ways that they could in, influence the vote. And it is a quantitative uh, research methodology that, that we use. Um, in short, what we look at is, first of all, when the running mate is more popular uh, or for that matter, unpopular, is that shifting how everyone votes? Do we see uh, a large movement in, in uh, voting percentages based on that? For the most part, we don't. Uh, for that matter, when a running mate suddenly gets more popular, it doesn't have a lasting effect on the presidential candidate. Um, we also look at what we call targeted effects, uh, and that deals with uh, not necessarily appealing to the whole country, but uh, is the running mate, uh, the vice presidential selection, a good way to pick up votes among a certain group of voters? So is Kamala Harris going to add votes among women and among African-Americans? Of course, the, the first one we can test based on previous evidence. The latter we can't test yet, but we'll see what comes out of 2020 um, just uh, in terms of historical examples. Uh, but by and large, not much in the way of these targeted effects. Uh, what we do find is that there tends to be this indirect effect. Um, kind of makes sense when you think about it. People are not really voting for vice president. They may like that person or dislike that person. But, you know, ultimately, the power disparity between those two folks only makes sense. You're going to choose the person you prefer for president regardless of who that elects as vice president. But your sense of that choice, who this person is, like, okay, Trump versus Biden, uh, what's their judgment? 
What's their leadership ability? What's their political ideology? What are their priorities? What's their administration going to look like? The choice of a running mate, when you have so many different people you could pick from, uh, tells people a lot about the presidential candidate. So just for one quick example, one thing we show uh, from 2008, uh, simply because the, the data available that year uh, uh, lend themselves to this much better than any other year, uh, we can show that the more people perceived Sarah Palin uh, as being ready to be president if necessary, uh, the better they thought of John McCain's judgment. Now, of course, a lot of that flipped, flipped around because there were uh, more doubts than usual about Palin's readiness to be uh, president. Uh, so basically, that perception that she wasn't ready, wasn't up to the job like she should be for a typical vice president, uh, hurt perceptions of McCain's judgment, and that hurt uh, his vote total. Uh, we can wow. show that statistically in the book and flip that around for Joe Biden, tended to be seen as uh, as more you know ready to be president if necessary. Uh, that enhanced perceptions of Barack Obama's judgment and added votes for him. You know, we're talking at the margins, nothing dramatic. Uh, but yes, they matter electorally, just not really in the way we typically think of, of, of bringing in a certain group of voters or just, you know, driving every, everyone's vote overall. It's more this indirect that sounds like it's some relatively complicated model, though, modeling potentially, because you're trying to tease out a little bit of causality there, I suppose, yes. which which sounds like it's pretty hard to do. Have there been other vice presidents historically who have had, you know, significant, really big kind of uh, influences uh, that you're able to find uh, in terms of turning out votes or getting, you know, reflecting well on their uh, president top of the ticket or whatever? It's hard to say. I, I don't want to dodge here, but I have to say that the the um, the evidence is really the, the data you can use to investigate these things is limited. What I just described in 2008, um, there just happened to be surveys, um, even that were launched before Palin's election, that asked really pointed things about perceptions of the running mate. Usually, you don't get a question in a survey that's like, "Does this person have good judgment?" At best, right. you, you'll get one that that <laughs> asks like, "Rate them on a, a scale from zero to 100. What do you think of them?" Um, sure. Which is kind of a rough measure. Uh, as as it is, and you get to these causality issues. I, I should mention um, uh, just quickly on on that uh, in terms of in terms of causality. How do you know uh, the running mates driving things? Uh, one thing we can do is there are some surveys, 08, 12, and sixteen, uh, these panel surveys where they uh, they go back to the same people over time over the course of the campaign uh, and ask them how are you going to vote, and at some point at least what do you think of the running mate? They also ask what uh, what groups uh, are, you belong to in terms of social uh, groups or political groups. Um, so there we can actually see, for instance, just to give you one example, um, uh, let's say, take Mike Pence in 2016. We can see how uh, evangelical Christians or uh, conservatives or Midwesterners, for that matter, actually, that's appropriate for this, right? Uh, we can see how they were planning to vote before his selection and then see if uh, a subsequent movement in their intentions on how they were going to vote. Uh, was that driven by being evangelical or being conservative or being a Midwesterner, controlling for other factors? And so there's one where we can pretty confidently say, believe it or not, actually being evangelical or conservative or Midwestern, all three of those did not uh, significantly, in a statistical sense, explain a movement toward the Trump ticket, uh, hmm. toward the Republican ticket. Um, and we often don't see those home state or, or regional effects. That's really interesting uh, in terms of, first of all, the panel surveys. That's great. As someone who does a fair yeah. amount of survey research, I follow mm -hmm. kind of, uh, you know, you see these polls that pop up periodically and I get jealous because there's a lot of work being done in terms <laughs> of how to do that. So that's that's awesome. Because yeah. you're talking about Mike Pence and how um, everything kind of changed, especially Indiana perception after he was put onto the, the 2016 ticket. Um, 
is there typically a positive effect on on the VP's home state once they're selected for a ticket or how does how does that work? Believe it or not, there's not much of a home state effect. Um, that is is one of the things you know everybody knows about running mates, right? It, is that hey, if you want to pick up a certain certain state, you want to pick up I don't know Michigan. Let let's say hey, Biden should have picked uh, Gretchen Whitmer. You you know you already, you already got uh, California in the bag. Why bother with with Kamala Harris? Pick Gretchen Whitmer in, instead. You hear a lot of this talk um, during the campaign, and um, you know we're not the first to. Um, uh, to, to look into this, uh, but our, our first uh, book, uh, Kyle Kopko and I, VP Advantage in 2016, was all in this home state effect. It's really the most in-depth uh, treatment of that, again, using different methodologies. And what we show pretty consistently is there really is not a home state okay. effect. Um, the best evidence, if there's any of this, would be, um, it, it's not entirely clear, uh, but maybe someone who comes from a smaller state, at least uh, smaller in terms of population, mm-hmm. there's probably a more coherent sense of identity in those states, like it means something to be in Delaware, uh, yeah. from Delaware that could be distinctive or maybe even Alaska in that case, um, uh, where like that actually matters in a way that, uh, no offense, but being from Ohio or Indiana, um, I don't know, that might not be as central to who people yeah. are just because there are different parts of that state, different identities within uh, that state. All oh, right. Sure. Your identity is a little more diffuse than those. Yep. Yeah. So here's a question. I was doing research for this. Why is every vice president from Indiana? Um, I mean, that's not actually true, but I looked. There have been about 12 vice presidents from the Great Lakes states, uh, That not counting New York. New York is a Great Lakes state, but I didn't yep. want to have to portion them out halfway to the Atlantic coast. And, the Great, so, and then six of those have been from Indiana. Uh, yeah. So is this, because, is this because of the Midwest being such a battleground that even though you found that you know, maybe there isn't that big effect, people still think there is, or maybe they used to think there is. Uh, is it because of that trying to win the battleground, or is there just something about Indiana that is uh, a sponge into which people can throw their political aspirations or something? I mean, <laughs> just a lot of great people live in Indiana. That, that's I mean, that's all, hard. I agree. I? <laughs> just, just trying to get on your good side. Uh, no, um, a lot of that goes back to an earlier era. So, of course, we have Mike Pence now and Dan Quayle uh, before him serving as vice president. Prior to that, if I'm getting this right, check me on this. I think last was Thomas Marshall under uh, Woodrow Wilson. Um, and, and there were uh, some others uh, uh, before that, uh, early 1900s, late 1800s. So um, let's see. Go- uh, Thomas Marshall. Sorry, you got me yeah. checking now. Thomas Marshall. Uh, yep. Was under Wilson. Oh, you named that, didn't you? Wow. You're a nerd. Fairbanks. Did you know him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fairbanks, uh, he, he, he ran once and lost and then ran with a different camp. He ran with Ru- Teddy Roosevelt and won in 04, and then he ran with Charles Evans Hughes in 1916 and lost. There we go. Listen to you. Thomas sides. Andrews Hendricks. Uh, no relation to Jimmy, judging by his picture. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, oh, boy. Schuyler Colfax Jr.? I, I actually don't know how you say it. I, I used to say Shyler or Skyler? Shyler? I, Skyler? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, he and he, to have been the he first was corrupt, time. so he didn't come back for a second term. They <laughs> gave him the boot. <laughs> anyway, but so, and then, then there may be more, and there's Illinois. We got we got your vice president covered. But so, uh, um, well, let, <laughs> I got let so me take, distracted by that. I forgot what you were saying. Yeah, um, I can jump back in on that, actually, because sure. I, um, uh, I can uh, tra- track my, my I distracted there. you. Is what you're saying <laughs> right. I got it's you. Good okay. trivia. I, I love good trivia. What can I say? Yeah. Um, so if you look at the, those uh, vice presidents who came from Indiana, most of them came from uh, an era where the vice president really did not have much power. Uh, so this modern era, 
Uh, and there's actually good evidence to suggest it's not from us. Uh, Jody Baumgartner is another political scientist who, who really studies uh, vice presidential selection. One thing he shows is that state competitiveness used to matter more in an earlier era. Experience matters more uh, since about 1960. As vice presidents have become more powerful, um, the competitiveness or the size of their state in terms of electoral votes uh, statistically predicts, uh, does less to predict, does very really nothing anymore to predict whether they're selected. And so in an earlier era when vice presidents weren't terribly consequential unless the president died, which happened more than anyway, um, <laughs> in, in those earlier eras, yeah, I mean, w picking a vice president, what does it do for you? At best, it helps you to win a state and maybe win the election. So, so there was more of an incentive back then to pick someone from a battleground state at that time. Indiana was one of the key battleground states. Ohio and New York, typically because they had more electoral votes, uh, yeah. they were actually... Uh, singled out for presidential nominations. Mm. So it was it was often the what was, uh, hey, we have a vice presidential slot left over. Uh, how about Indiana? Let's let's work them in here. Uh, or or uh, New Jersey was often competing for that. Throw New Jersey a bone. Yeah, sure. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. And then so then speculating and maybe not. So you're talked a lot. It's interesting about how the vice presidency has evolved. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is pure speculation. I just thought of it and we can edit it out if it doesn't work. But uh, how do you think that might continue like going forward in the next hundred? How does the vice presidency look uh, in a hundred years that it doesn't now? Obviously, it will be a robot um, and <laughs> people have implanted. But I mean, forgetting all that, it'll be hooked up to the matrix. Uh, how do you think the, the position might change if like current trends continue or what do you kind of forecast going in there? You know, there, there's been relative stability uh, over the last, you know, we're at nearly half a century, really, of, of powerful vice presidents, ones that have an office directly in the West Wing, which I don't know if that seems like much, but it really is a big deal. Um, they, they have frequent access. They're always there. They're allowed into high-level meetings. They get the intelligence briefings. Um, they get one-on-one -on -one time with the president. There's often a, a, a lunchtime per week set up in some cases. That's been pretty stable for, you know, for the last, again, nearly half century. Um there's some fluctuations in what they do. Um, some take on more specific tasks uh, than, than others. Uh, so uh, I, I guess the best I could say is that um, there seems to be not a, a steady increase in overall responsibility, some shifting in where they focus their energy. And some of that depends on, you know, quirks of who's president and who's vice president, what they want to do and how they get along and all that kind of stuff. Um but I, I can't say I, I have any good reason to believe it's going to become uh, much more powerful over time. Uh, it's possible we could see some of these things codified in law uh, that yeah. vice president would take on certain duties. I, I, as long as presidents are seeing it's their advantage to keep giving this responsibility to the vice president, um, there, I don't think there's really need uh, for some intervention, uh, uh, legally speaking, or, or in terms of constitutional amendments. Uh, so, so I would anticipate that um, that probably vice presidents are going to continue to be this important governing partner, but in an informal sense, uh, unless, you know, perhaps there's something about the job of being president that becomes infinite, infinitely more complex and you just need someone to have official responsibility for this other duty. But, you know, honestly, often the, the response is to create a new um, uh, uh, department uh, of government, a new sure. agency yeah. uh, and give responsibility, at least formal responsibility to a, a cabinet uh, a secretary. For, I guess for those of us that haven't already voted, um, going into election night, what what should we be looking for? Or what are you specifically looking for? There's so much going on with this. It's hard to nail it down to, uh, to, to uh, one or two things. Um, I, I think the I, I think it's important to make sure everyone knows going into it. And if you're following this closely, this may be old news, but just to be clear, 
Um, it's unlikely that we're going to know the winner on election night. Part of that has to do with variation in state laws on when incoming ballots can be counted. Now, there are some states that allow ballots to be counted immediately as soon as they're received. I'm talking about if there's an early vote, an absentee vote, immediately counted. Some of them at some period uh, beforehand, a certain number of days before the election, they can start counting the votes. Some it starts uh, at, at different points on uh, election day or election night. Um, so there are some states, including Pennsylvania, that they're not going to they're going to get a ton. And of course, Pennsylvania probably is if the election comes down to one state, it's probably Pennsylvania. That, that's mm-hmm. what, how most estimates have it. Uh, I'm not saying it will, but if it did, that would probably be the state uh, to watch. So some states like Pennsylvania, uh, who may be, uh, which may be critical, uh, they can't start counting these ballots that have come in, you know, through other means, uh, not cast on election day. They can't start counting them uh, until uh, election day or election night. I forget exactly when when they have it. I think it's when the polls close. I could be wrong. Um, there will also be, depending on on the state, uh, some ballots that. Don't they have to be postmarked by election day, but they don't arrive until the day after, yeah. two days after, maybe three days after. Uh, so those will still be there to be counted. So depending on how close the overall race is, depending on how close a particular state is, especially if it's a decisive one, um, <laughs> you know, that, that's why it's hard to speak about election night. Um, oh, right. Because while I'd like to think we'd have a quick resolution, uh, whoever wins that we'd at least agree on who won pretty quickly. Uh, frankly, I think it's going to take some patience that we're not accustomed to, and I do fear how that's going to play into different narratives of what exactly has gone on. You might see something where the vote totals are looking a certain way on election night, and one candidate uh, may seize on that and say, look, I won, and then totally legitimate votes that were count- cast in proper ways and are counted in proper ways um, come in a day or two or three later, or at least that they're, they aren't added to the tally until that time later. Uh, and, and some people might try to portray that as somehow illegitimate when it's not. Um, that, that's the thing that I really have most on my mind, frankly, going into uh, election night, uh, just beside the, the kind of battleground electoral map stuff. So is this like December that we should be expecting to know who the actual winner is? It's hard to say. It depends on, on, yeah. on, on whether there are legal uh, disputes, okay. which there very well may be. Uh, there is, um, uh, according to federal law, uh, there there uh, does have to be uh, electoral uh, vote. Electoral college has to meet in December. I forget the exact date. I want to say it's the 12th or 14th or, or somewhere in there. It's kind of mid-December uh, where the electoral college will vote. And, and that means in every state, the members of the electoral college separately in their respective states are meeting to vote on the same day at the same time. Um, then uh, it, it, those are transmitted to Congress and, and uh, the vice president appropriately enough, is the one who actually opens those uh, envelopes, those seal certificates. This is one other constitutional role. They have to be able to count. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a high bar. Um, so the vice president uh, opens them and they're counted. That happens in uh, early January. I that's Okay, so I have a follow-up question in this. Stuart, feel free to edit it out. If no, it no, no, no. Let's keep it um, But there are a lot of people that are thinking about not voting because they don't see their vote counting because it is like ultimately up to the electoral college to decide who gets elected. So what would you have to say to those people? I would say uh, it, it depends on the state, but in most states, the electors are legally bound to vote for whoever uh, wins the vote in that state. Okay. Um, I, I, I can't say off the top of my head whether this is true in Indiana, for instance, or, or which states, um, but I believe it's 31 or 32 states now. Uh, require their electors to vote in accordance with how the people of that state 
voted. So you are binding them, at least in most of these states. And it was actually disputed whether that was constitutional. It's not a matter of, of, of you know, constitutional provision that they're bound in such a way. Obviously, this is varying by state. So, so there's some flexibility for states to make choices here. Um, there was some question of, of whether a state could actually penalize an elector uh, for, for not exercising their conscience, instead just following the will of, of the people. That was resolved uh, last July, and the Supreme Court affirmed that, yes, states, if they want to, uh, can bind their electors in, in that way. Which makes sense because they're representing that state. And I'll let yeah. that be. <laughs> Real-time real fact check. Indiana does not bind the electors. There we okay. go. Which is uh, very Indiana. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, Chris, this is actually really interesting. I always say that, and I'm usually lying, but this time I'm not lying. Um, is that going on, Aaron? Is that going to make yeah. this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, no, this is really fascinating. You're obviously a wealth of knowledge about this stuff, and it's something that's so very important and so very timely. So that's good. But that's actually not why we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes. Uh, the reason we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to answer two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose? Hands down the sandwich. There, there are two Hands things down. that I, I am competent to make when it comes to food, salads <laughs> okay. and sandwiches. I love making a good sandwich. So any day, I just had one for lunch myself. It was fantastic sandwich. There we go. So uh, what kind of sandwich? So I, the next question is usually where should I go in Dayton to get a sandwich? But if you prefer <laughs> to tell me about your lunch sandwich, that's fine too. Let's just go deep on Sandos here. You want me to? I can. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So you toast the bread, toast put the, the, bread. the lunch meat on, and then you dice, uh, let's see, cucumbers, onions, and serrano peppers, olive oil and vinegar, uh, some lettuce, kale is even better if you can get it, uh, melt some cheese on it, put it in the microwave for a minute, and then you put hummus on the top piece of bread. What? Cut it in half. It's fantastic. It sounds like salad in sandwich form. <laughs> so really, I make I make one meal, except one of them I put in between bread. Two pieces, two pieces of toasted bread. That's my secret. I like that. Well, that's now, really awesome. You, you got me thinking now, Meg. I think you're right about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Uh, and then uh, the second question is, is it, we like to leave our listeners with like one piece of life advice. It can be big or small, serious or silly. Uh, but, you know, what is something we like to give people something to ruminate on? So if you had to give a piece of life advice, what would that be? I would say on a serious note, um, it's really hard to keep up with the news right now. And I struggle with my, myself, um, even though I, I have a deep interest in it, of course. And I'm, I'm you know, talking to students and, and others about what's going on. Um, but one thing that I find is actually most helpful in understanding current events is history. You hear people talk about, um, you know, uh, reading history books, or I should know more history or, or, or making historical illusions that they often can't back up. Um, I'm just so often struck by as much as I'm coming from a political science standpoint and doing quantitative analysis in a lot of these cases, as I was describing, um, you know, a lot of times if you want to understand current events, read more history. Um, there are so many things that you think are just unique to the era you live in. And actually, there's just different versions of things that have happened before. Uh, we could take populism, uh, for instance. Um, which of course is is front and center right now. I you know, read a book on populism a couple of years ago. It, it was written in the '90s. I was amazed by how much the words of folks like Pat Buchanan, you know, you, you could just insert into today. Or another book I was reading about Spiro Agnew, a vice president, a uh, fantastic book that came out a year or so ago from the University of Virginia Press uh, about him. And um, you know, the things he was saying um, sound much like what you hear um, in, in politics uh, today. So so much that we think is new isn't actually new. Um, I don't know if that's reassuring to think, hey, we got through it before, we can do it again. 
um, or if it's depressing to think how much some things don't change. Uh, but that perspective is is one that I think is is important for all of us to have. That sounds really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, uh, where can people go to find out more about your work? Is there a social media thing you'd like to direct people to? A website? Obviously, go buy the book. We'll link to that in our show notes. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that'd be uh, great. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Prof Divine, P-R-O-F-D-E-V-I-N-E. And uh, you can go to my website. It's uh, ChristopherJDivine.com, ChristopherJDivine.com. Um, and we will link to all of those in the show notes. Yes, plug away. What else? Great. Yeah, um, uh, that, that, that's it. I hope that helps. And, okay. and I appreciate the... Uh, Opportunity to be on here, Megan Stewart. This has been fun, and and uh, hey, let's let's do it again sometime. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Uh, open invitation. All right. Uh, thank you so much. You bet. That was really interesting. I, in another life, I think I would be a politics junkie, but my life is not empty right now. So I'm glad to get, you know, real expert on there to come and give us the, the quick and dirty version of it. That was awesome. For sure. I was super surprised that people um, specialize in studying the vice presidents. Yeah. But I understand how now after, cause I did know the bucket of warm spit. Uh, <laughs> so the real quote, you can look it up. I'm not going to link to it. We're, we're a government organization. It's not spit. It's a different uh, liquid. Um, but, uh, so I knew that quote (laughs) and, uh, uh, but, but I I can say it was really interesting, but also, and we didn't get into this. It's actually applied research in a way, in terms of thinking about how to pick vice presidential candidates and stuff like that. Yeah. And it was interesting to hear about how, cause I, you know, the Midwest is always important. It's always, you know, last, last time it was, uh, you know, Wisconsin was a big turning point Michigan always is. And you hear about Ohio and all that. And so was, I, I really enjoyed getting a chance to, uh, hear some of the details behind that. So that was great. That was good. Plus a good sound of sandwich. So I'm going to check it out. It sounded delicious. Yeah. Much better. I was going to make a sandwich for lunch and I ended up having chili instead because we had leftovers and, you know, I am the leftover vacuum in our house, uh, but <laughs> Now I am full of anger that I didn't make a sandwich. <laughs> anyway, Would it have uh, been as delicious as his sandwich sounded, though? No, 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 definitely not. I can't make it. You know, well, I can't make a sandwich to save my life. I'm not a chef no. uh, at all. I am a more of an appreciator of other <laughs> chefs. I think. <laughs> anyway, uh, great. Well, Megan, where can people go to find out more about the work that you are doing, both personally and with the Familiar Faces Project? You can find me on Twitter at underscore TFFP and on Instagram at the Familiar Faces Project. There you go. Wait a minute. Actually, hold on now. Hold on. Let's talk. So you just had this big deal on. So I so I quit. So the one thing I did for my own mental health is I logged out of social media until after this election, because I feel like it's a relatively stressful time. And I do. And especially with the pandemic and the election, I'm like a doom scrolling machine, like my fingers all decrepit and I'm just full of anger and and depression. So I, I logged off. But as I was logging off, I saw this really cool thing you were doing with some of your colleagues, I guess, on, on yes. communication. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, sure. So we, um, there was, there, I guess, starting back to back in May um, with Chris Cooper, the Central Park birder, um, there sparked a series of Black in X groups. And so that was, um, that was Black Birders Week is the one that really got kicked off. Black in Nature was one of the main hashtags in that one. Um, and we, there was a group that, that was going around asking for volunteers to participate for Black in Science communication. Um, and so you can, you can go on Twitter, we were mainly on Twitter, um, hashtag Black in SciComm. Um, 
and we had a whole week full of amazing things. We had workshops and and panels. The one of the things that I led was an outreach day, and so we had three different scientists um, come on, and one did a lot of um, different lab safety and terminology things, and then we had one do uh, the foam gnome project and talked about chemical reactions and physical properties, and then we had what was near and dear to my heart from the College of Agriculture, um, food science was represented. So we talked about food properties and different activities that kids could do at home. And so that was a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, I encourage you to look down right now at your phone and right there at the bottom of the show notes, you'll see a link both to Megan's social stuff, but also to the, what is it, Black and Sci-Com? Blackandsci-com.com. Doc, oh, there's a website too. There's also a website. So you can also go, you can go into the website and you can find different Black and Science communications science black and you can find different black science communicators on this website um and there i mean science communication revolves around all kinds of different fields right so i've got the natural resources background there were people from the medical field and people um that are in humanities and just all kinds of different venues and so it was it was a lot of fun well, that's really cool. I'm at the website now. It's Black and SciCom with two M's. Yeah. SciCom with two M's for communication. Well, I encourage everybody to go and check that out. And uh, hopefully we'll have more about that in a future episode. Uh, I also encourage people to go and uh, check out Illinois Indiana Sea Grant at iicgrant.org. And we're on many social things at ILINC Grant for Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. <laughs> So that's going to do it for the first quadrennial uh, Teach Me About the Great Lakes election special. And so, folks, I want to remind you, uh, you know, it's special that we get to do this, that we get to vote. There are places that don't, and for many, many years, people did not. And so it's easy to uh, get in this mindset that your vote isn't important or it doesn't count. Uh, but I think it's really important to go out there and vote. And, and so to celebrate that and honor that, uh, I'm going to read from... Uh, President Abraham Lincoln's uh, concluding remarks from his message to Congress on December 1st, 1862. This is a month before he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and he wanted to deliver a message to Congress. And so this is from the end of it. But first, if we're going to go maudlin, let's go full maudlin. Much better. We can succeed only by concert. It is not, can any of us imagine better, but can we all do better? The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. So go out there and vote. It really matters. <laughs>